Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Well, I want to ask you guys a question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. How in the world did the message of the gospel survive the first century? I mean, if you begin to think about it, how is that possible? How in the world did the church survive? How did the church exist? And how in the world do we have a church today? Well, it happened because a handful of people poured into the streets of Jerusalem and they delivered a message to everybody that would be open and willing to hear. And the message was simply this, that Jesus was crucified right outside the city walls, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that we witnessed him. We saw him, that he was a resurrected Savior. And they shared that message. And as they shared that message, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people believed and embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior from God. And as time went on, you began to discover that, man, this movement, because it's really what it was, is a movement, it was unstoppable, though there were people who were trying to stop it. One in particular was a guy, a Pharisee by the name of Saul. And Saul did everything he could to destroy this new movement, this church. He even jailed believers in Jesus. He even had them killed. After wreaking havoc upon the church for years, Saul, who would become Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he had this incredible conversion to Christ. He became an advocate for the very thing that he had been persecuting. Years after his uh, transformation, his, his conversion to Christ, he went throughout uh, Greece and Turkey and the Mediterranean Rim spreading this gospel message that he had received, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can have peace with God through faith in his son, Jesus. While Paul's spreading that message, the gospel message, while he's planting churches and making disciples, back in Jerusalem, a controversy, a major controversy was brewing. And it's, this controversy is so relevant for us today because this controversy, and not so much the specific controversy, but the principle and principles behind it, it has to do with the very thing that some of you experienced in church growing up. This controversy has to do with the reason that some of you might have chosen at some point to walk away from the church and then maybe come back. It's the very reason that some people want nothing to do whatsoever with the church. They're open to God, but they want nothing to do with the church. The controversy was about who can be part of the church, who gets in, who can be part of the church, how good do you have to be, how many rules do you have to follow, how many rules do you have to keep, how many traditions do you have to follow, how much of your lifestyle do you need to clean up before you can be welcomed and accepted in the church? This controversy, it's totally understandable if you lived in the first century. For Jews who believed in Jesus as their Savior, it made perfect sense to them that in order for you to be saved, to be what you and I call a Christian today, in order to be saved, you had to first become Jewish. After all, Jesus himself was what? He was Jewish. 
And the Jewish people were God's chosen people. So if you want to be saved, you have to become like us, become one of us. However, the Apostle Paul had gone throughout the Mediterranean Rim, Asia Minor, and he had assured Gentiles that the way to receive salvation was by grace through faith in God's Son, Jesus. That faith was surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. Faith was not following a bunch of rules and commandments, specifically the 613 commandments that God had specifically given the Jewish people. So there were two messages that were going out to people. What happens when we send mixed messages or mixed signals? If you're in football and you're the quarterback, you throw the ball to a specific designated spot. If there's a mixed message, mixed signal, the receiver isn't there, who catches the ball? The defense, right? In a husband and wife relationship, time and energy is spent trying to reconcile and restore and correct. Why? Because you had sent mixed signals to one another and you're trying to deal with that. Perhaps the kids were stuck waiting at the practice field long after the practice was over. Why? Because each parent thought the other one was picking up the kid. Now, today in modern world, we don't necessarily see that as much anymore because, you know, parents these days, like, they're afraid to leave their kids, so they got to watch the whole time. But, but it, didn't always, it wasn't always that way. Or reality, now you have cell phones and all that kind of stuff, so it doesn't happen as much. But when I was growing up, jeez, uh, that makes me sound old. Um, when I was growing up, uh, that would happen, and, and I found myself waiting and waiting and waiting for one of my parents to pick me up. Has that happened to any of you here? I just want to see if there's any. Okay, there's so even some of our younger people. Okay, so, so you get it. Like, you know that, and what would you do? You'd be like, hey, do you got a dime? Uh, I need a dime, and so you get the dime. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and you'd go, and you'd put it in the, you know, the pay phone, and you'd call, and the answering machine would go off, and it's like, oh, man, you just sit and wait and wait. Mixed messages, mixed signals. Speaking of kids, I, I think you understand this. Kids are extremely skilled at getting their parents to send mixed signals and mixed messages on something they want, right? Or somewhere they want to go, something they want to get. And in that confusion, the kid often gets what they want, or the kid ends up getting to go where they want to go. The parents later figure out they weren't on the same page together. And so they got to undo that and fix that, that mixed messages that the kids were skilled at trying to get to send to you. On and on and on and on and on it goes. Mixed messages and mixed signals, they're not good. They're not good for sports. They're not good for businesses. They're not good for families. And they're definitely not good for faith. Paul, he had gone out and he had assured those that he was reaching that if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, then that you could have peace with God by putting your faith in Jesus. He assured them then, by doing that, you could be saved. You could be part of the church, the ecclesia, the, the assembly, the, the family of God. But there's another group of people sending another message. Mixed signals, mixed messages. They're saying... There's a particular standard you need to follow. 
They're saying you've got to memorize this and follow this. That you have to take these steps. You need to do this. You need to clean up your act before you can embrace Jesus and be part of the church, the family of God. If you've been a Christian for a longer period of time, you can actually understand a little bit of this conflict. Because you know there's a part of Christianity that is a, a moral and ethical standard, right? I mean, you know as you look at, in the Old Testament and the New Testament that you see that there's this moral imperative, so to speak, that there is this holiness standard, and that's part of Christianity. And yet at the same time, you also know that there's this incredible message of freedom and grace and forgiveness and love. And when we as individuals and then collectively also as a church when we get this right, within ourselves and us as a church, when there's an embodiment of grace and truth, and that's lived out in such a way that forgiveness isn't dumbed down, grace isn't dumbed down, the moral imperatives of Christianity aren't dumbed down, when that happens, when they coexist together, it's a powerful, powerful example of the church of God truly at its best. That's when people thrive. That's when churches thrive. That's when the kingdom of God grows. Growth happens. The early church, they were wrestling with this, with this tension between grace and truth. You and I know from John chapter 1 that Jesus embodied grace and truth perfectly. It wasn't a balance of, he embodied all of it. But the early church, just like you and I, they struggled. And they struggled with the tension between the two. And with that struggle in mind, I want us to turn to Acts chapter 15. That's where we're going to be today, Acts chapter 15. You can go on your physical Bible, or if you don't have that, go to your phone to the YouVersion Bible app. And as we begin to read, the question becomes, what's going to happen to the church? Would the church split? Will the church split? Will the church be divided forever? And what do you and I grab a hold of and take hold of so that you and I can better line up with the heart and desire and actions of Jesus? Let's check it out. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, some men came down from Judea. So we're finding out right away, Judea, that's where Jerusalem is. So that's where the apostles are. That's where the church starts. And they came down to Antioch. Antioch is the first place, the first church, if you will, where people were referred to as Christians. And so they come down to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers. Everybody say teaching. So this is, they're coming down. They're not just doing some casual, hey, we got an announcement. They're teaching the brothers. And, and what is their message to all these brand new Christians who, by the way, in Antioch, they were primarily Gentiles, meaning they weren't Jewish. What's the message they're teaching to these primary Jewish belie uh, Gentile believers? They said they were teaching this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa, time out. <laughs> Hold on here. You're saying I have to have a surgery or I can't become a Christian? You're saying that I have to take this particular physical action or I can't be a Jesus follower? Paul never told us that part. Yeah, he should have. He failed to do that. I don't know why he did that. Maybe he was a little nervous about how you would respond. Of course they would be nervous. 
But the reality is, if you want to be saved, you have to practice the Jewish ways. And the Jewish ways say that you have to have a surgery, a circumcision. Now, you know what that meant? I'll tell you what it meant. It meant that all the new believers' classes were primarily filled with women and children. That's what it meant. (laughs) It seems obvious to us now, but these early Jewish Christians, they really believed that you had to join the Moses Club before you could join the Jesus Club. That, That before you could join the church and be part of the family of God, you had to become Jewish, so to speak. And so verse 2, this teaching, if you will, brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Of course it did. Paul and Barnabas had been out on, on what you and I would call Paul's first missionary journey. And they were telling people, hey, to embrace Jesus, if you just embrace Jesus, you don't have to worry about all the Jewish laws. Just embrace Jesus. And so after this dispute, and I can imagine the tension that must have been in the air and and the meetings upon meetings that were happening, there's these disputes and these debates. And so what did the church do? So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So the church of Antioch's like, man, we got to figure this out. This is a huge deal. There are a lot of implications for our church and for the future of the church. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they, Paul, Barnabas, others, reported everything that God had done through them. So Paul and Barnabas, we also know Titus was there with them. They show up into Jerusalem and they say, okay, they're before the elders and the apostles and the church and they say, listen, For almost two years, Barnabas and I traveled throughout Turkey and and Greece, the Mediterranean Rim, and we planted churches. And so, so many Gentiles came to saving faith in Jesus, so they responded to the message of Jesus. And we witnessed over and over and over how God transformed, how God changed lives. But I haven't been telling them that they have to clean up their act and become a Moses follower before they become a Jesus follower. And that means I haven't told them anything about this whole circumcision thing. I certainly haven't said you have to be circumcised to be saved. A scalpel is not needed for salvation. Now, by the way, if you want to dig in more about this meeting in Jerusalem that we're reading about in Acts chapter 15, and if you want to have a better, under, and more, I would say a more thorough understanding of, of Paul and his thinking on this matter and his theology on this matter, I would really encourage you this week to read the letter of Galatians or the book of Galatians. I really, in fact, I encourage all of you to read that this week and do it like in one or two sittings. In the book of Galatians, if you go through and read it, you'll discover how upset Paul is about people who have come, who've sent a mixed message. And they had come to the churches in Galatia and tried to undo Paul's preaching and teaching about salvation and faith. And he hadn't talked about becoming Jewish and becoming circumcised in order to be saved. And so I would encourage you to check that out. And so here we have in Acts 15, Paul, he's standing up saying, guys, we're sending mixed messages to the Gentiles. 
So we've got to move, and we've got to act, and we've got to act fast, and we've got to make a decision. Verse 15, then some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and I just think that's cool that you also see even Pharisees got saved. Jesus railed into them during his ministry, but it's pretty awesome to see that some of them came to the place and softened their hearts and saw who Jesus was. But they were still fully committed to the law of Moses. They're not happy about what Paul is teaching and preaching. So these Pharisees, they stood up and said, the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. In other words, Paul, you need to get back on the boat and you need to go back to all those cities where you have preached and taught and you need to teach all those new believers you left some things out. And you need to teach them. They need to start following our Jewish 613 commandments that God gave to us, our laws. That means they need to eat different than they've ever eaten in their life. That means they need to dress differently than they've ever dressed in their life. That means they need to obey our Sabbath that they've never obeyed. And it means they have to have a surgery. Once all that happens, Paul, you need to tell them, at that point they can be saved and they can be part of the church. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, us Gentiles, we hear that and we think, that's just absurd. But I don't want us to judge them too harshly. Because the reality is, if you've been in church for a while, that kind of thinking creeps into you and I as well. What am I talking about? See, if you and I aren't careful we will begin to impose our standards of what we think our faith looks like and what we believe Christianity looks like and doesn't look like. And we begin to impose our standards upon those who are seeking God, who are pursuing God, those who are new in the faith. And even we begin to impose on longtime believers our version of Christianity if their version isn't just like ours, we end up becoming judgmental. And suddenly, we've developed our own standards of what saving faith looks like. And we end up becoming very uncomfortable with those who don't look, act, vote, think, talk, dress like us. That's what was happening in the first century also. It's not just a 21st century problem. So verse 7, after much discussion, because this is a huge deal, monumental uh, uh, implications are at stake here. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And he said this, brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips. In other words, this isn't just a Paul thing, sharing his story about being out in, 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 in Turkey and Greece. This is, a, this is a Peter thing too. How the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So Peter's just giving them a little history reminder. Hey guys, you remember? I told you all about that. Remember I went to Cornelius' house? And his house is full of a bunch of Gentiles. And you remember they ended up all putting their faith in Jesus. And, and they're all like, oh, that's right. We remember you told us that. You mentioned that to us. Verse 8, God, who knows the heart. Everybody say heart. 
God who knows the heart. You see, I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. But I know your behavior. I know what you say, how you act, what you do, the kind of music you listen to, the the language you use. But I don't know your heart. God knows. God knows the heart. And we're going back to what matters most. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, the ones who don't even know, keep the Ten Commandments, our Ten Commandments, the ones who have no idea about these 613 commandments. He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just like he did to us Jewish people. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Remember, you told us that story. We kind of thought it was a one-off, but we remember you told us. Peter continues, verse 9. He, meaning God, made no distinction between us, God's chosen Jewish people, and them, the Gentiles, for he purified their hearts. How did God purify their hearts? Was it by keeping the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments and rules? No, no, no. God purified their hearts. Let's say it together. God purified their hearts by what? By faith. By faith. And the believers who are Pharisees are saying, okay, I get it. God might have purified their heart, but man, they got a whole lot of nasty Gentile habits. I mean, man, the way they talk, the way, the things that they eat, they don't dress right. They don't take a day of the week seriously like we do. So then Peter asked them a very important question. Verse 10, he said, now then, why do you try to test God? Test God. How? Why do you test God? By putting on the necks of disciples, meaning Gentile converts, a yoke that we, neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. Peter says, look, my Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't even keep our own law ourselves. So why in the world would we now try to impose that upon new Gentile believers that it's burdened us for generations? Why would we put that on them? He says, verse 11, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Everybody say the word saved. That we are saved just as they are. What's Peter saying? You see, Peter is saying, God can purify our hearts long before we can purify our behaviors. God purifies the heart. He does the work, the action inside of us. By faith, we surrender to him. He does this action in us. And he purifies our heart long before we fix those nasty habits. He purifies our heart long before we step into a place where maybe we can fix or restore our relationship or our marriage or this or that. Everyone is saved the same way. God brings salvation by grace through faith. And it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. We aren't saved by following a whole bunch of rules and a list and entering into certain behaviors. We're we're, we're saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Then James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who ended up being the primary leader in the Jerusalem church, He's listened to this discussion. There's been a discussion that's gone on with everybody. Paul shared, Peter shared. 
Others are probably shared. And in verse 19, James says this, it is my judgment, therefore, I've heard everything, here's my judgment, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I think that's one of the coolest verses in the Bible. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. One of the reasons I think it's such an amazing verse is I think we all have a habit accidentally of making it difficult for people who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. I know, James, I know we have a moral standard. I get it. I know there are commandments. I understand. And I know also that Jesus is about freedom and grace and forgiveness. I understand all that. So here's the bottom line. In light of all that, we should not make it difficult. A couple other translations. We should not inflict unexpected annoyance. Man, I wonder sometimes, is that us? We bring in a whole lot of extra stuff. Another translation says we should not add burdens for people who are turning to God. In other words, for them, he was saying, we cannot impose our Jewishness on Gentiles. Stick to the saving message of Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get sidetracked. But hold on. James, I mean, we got all these laws and these commandments. What about this one? And, and man, I read the Old Testament, and there's some good stuff in there. Shouldn't they hold on to this one? I mean, this is good. No, no, no. Let's not burden them with all of our stuff. We're going to tell them about something, and it doesn't make sense necessarily to us, but I I want you to see this, and then I'll explain it to you. Verse 20 says, we're going to tell them about certain things. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. And here's why. We're going to ask them to do that. Verse 21, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. So he's, like, he's, he's basically saying to them, listen, the meat thing, the idol thing, I get it. We should bring that up to them. Because, because Jewish people, that's like so offensive to them. And so we'll ask them to be sensitive about that and to abstain from that. We're also going to tell them to abstain from sexual immorality because the reality is sexual immorality is such a huge part of cultures and, and, and pagan cultures, and, and so they need to stay away from that, but that's it. You believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You turn your life over to him in faith, then you're in. You're a part of the family of God. And so... With that message, Paul, Barnabas, Titus, and some others, they head back to the church in Antioch who are waiting to hear the results of the meeting. And you can imagine that was probably the biggest attendance day of that church to date, right? Everybody pours in. And as Paul begins to open the letter from the Jerusalem church, you could hear the whispers as people were saying, please no surgery, please no surgery, please no surgery, please no surgery. Verse 31, the people read it and they were glad for its encouraging message. I bet they were. I think there was more than what Luke chose to write. I think they're high-fiving each other. I think people were shouting out, hallelujah, praise Jesus, thank you, Jesus. I think people felt relief. And thankfully, the church dodges what would have been a catastrophic, massive split. And what would have the split been over? Moral imperatives, standards 
doing the right thing, truth, so to speak, versus grace. And the leaders, they wisely said, grace and truth, they should not be in conflict with one another. That that the church, we should embody, not balance grace and truth, but we should embody both grace and truth. And this is a huge subject, and and we don't have time to to get, uh, it would be a whole other message to break it down. But with that in mind, I do want to give you, as we wrap it up, I want to give you at least just a few big ideas that you and I would hold on to. I'd encourage you to think about these this week, re-listen even, re-watch the message, and think about the implications for your life and for us as a church. Let's see what we need to grab a hold of both personally and then collectively as a church. And the first is this, no particular order, but as I look through this, this lets me know that you and I would do well to recognize that we all have a drift towards insiders people like us, that that's our drift. And so it is mission critical for us to be intentional, to seek out and to welcome outsiders. You see, it's easy for you and I as as insiders, so to speak. Collectively, the more time we spend with our church family, the longer you're in relationship with Jesus, the more your relationships grow and develop with the people in this room. And they become your best friends and your closest friends. And, and you guys uh, share life together. You share ministry together. And that's amazing. That's wonderful. And that's part of what happens. And that's a good thing. But recognize that reality that you have now have had this tug, this pull, this drift towards the insiders. And so then let's take the steps to be intentional to get outside of our Christian circles where everyone starts looking like us, thinking like us, acting like us, dressing like us, believing like us, voting like us. Seek out those who aren't Jesus followers. Spend time with them. Pray with them. Make the most of opportunities to meet their needs and welcome them into your relationships that you have with the church family. And so we want to do that as individuals, but we also want to do that collectively as the church body. What do I mean? Well, I mean, practically speaking, we come to church, physical church, even though the church is really the assembly of the people, but we come here, we gather together, and it's natural and easy for us to go to and spend time with and hang out with those that we know well and we see, see every week. Even in the church, we get that. We have like, we're, we're insiders, but then there's the insiders that we're insiders with. That's just our tendency. So here's what I want to encourage you with. In fact, I want to challenge you. In fact, I want to ask you. I want to plead with you. I want to beg you every single week that you would intentionally pray about and seek out those that you don't know or you don't recognize. Every week. I want you to imagine if every single one of us did this in every single church across the world, the church would explode. You never know. You never know if that conversation that you have might change somebody's life. You don't know if God wants to use you to be the person that God uses to reach that person who's maybe deciding about, hey, is this a church for me? Or is church for me? Is faith for me? You never know if you're part of the link that God is using to see that somebody gets saved. You never know if somebody had prayed, God, I'll give church a try one more time. 
This is my last time. You never know if that's not somebody coming through the doors. And God might be wanting to use you to be the person to break that barrier down and help that person. Is this tracking with anybody? God wants to use you. So be intentional. We talked about last week. Peter's praying, Cornelius is praying, God brings them together. So seek out, reach beyond your circle because your drift is towards the insiders. That was the case for these Jewish Jesus followers. Second, this is a little more insidious. Recognize our drift towards law, rule, regulation, tradition, and away from grace. Recognize it. Realize that it's there. It's a natural tendency that we all have, every local church collectively and individually, to drift towards policies, procedures, checklists, and to think in terms of categories and traditions. That's what happened to the early church. It's a category, right? Gentile. Policy. Have a surgery. Follow our laws. Keep the laws of Moses. Once you fulfill those, once you check those boxes, hey, then we can move forward together. But you know what's better than a policy? It's having a conversation. It's having a discussion. I think about Matthew, and Jesus goes to Matthew, hey, Matthew, let's share some life together. Let's have a conversation. I want to talk. Peter's like, whoa, 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 category, he's a tax collector. Policy, uh, uh, Matthew, before we even pursue any conversation here, you need to sign this, you need to fill this out, you need to agree to this, this, and this. No, no, Jesus said, no, no, let's just have a conversation. Let's have a discussion. Policies and categories, traditions, all that kind of stuff, those are easy. You don't have to meet. You don't have to connect. You just fill out a form, so to speak. Conversations and grace, that's a little messy. Sometimes it's a lot messy, but it's powerful. It's what Jesus did, and that's what you and I called to do as well. And since you and I are so prone to drift towards Give me the list. Give me the rules. Give me the requirements. Give me the categories. Give me the policies. Give me the traditions. Since that's our drift, let us err on the side of grace. Let us err on the side of grace because, and I thank God that God erred on that side with me and with you. God didn't tell me, Chris, clean up your act and then you can come follow me. It's not what Scripture says. The Scripture tells us that God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still sinners. In other words, while we're still sinning, Jesus died for us. He wanted to have a relationship with us, and you could receive him. So let's err on the side of grace because our natural tendency is to drift towards law and rule and category and traditions in the way we treat others. And I can tell you this. All of that is what so often repels people. And we don't want that to happen. Because then they don't end up seeing Jesus. They don't end up seeing the message that Jesus loves them and wants to have a relationship with them. Finally, let's recognize our drift 
towards preserving rather than advancing. If you've ever started something, you know what I'm talking about. If you started a business, you know what I'm talking about. Because when you start a business, typically speaking, what do you have? Nothing. You got an idea, you got a little bit of capital if you're lucky, and you go for it. And you're a risk taker and you go all in. You have this vision of what this could become. And then it begins to grow and grow. And maybe you're fortunate enough and you might end up having, or not necessarily fortunate enough, but you might end up having employees and having buildings and having all of this. And the next thing you know, you find yourself saying, oh, you know what? It's time to preserve. It's time to protect, to hold on to. I have to take less risk. Churches are the same way. In the beginning when we started LifePoint, you know what we had? We had nothing. We had a vision. We had a dream, a hope, and a whole lot of prayer. Amen. Amen. As time went on, with that lot, so to speak, what happened? You have people. You have buildings. You have budgets. You have staff. And over time, there's this tendency to say, whoa, careful. Let's hold on. Let's preserve. Let's protect. That was what these Jewish Christ followers found themselves doing in their situation. They're thinking, we have to preserve the law. We have to protect the law. We have to hold on to the law. They need to do this. They have to follow that. They need to obey. In their effort to preserve something good, they lost sight of the fact that, man, we're to go out and we're going to advance the kingdom. We're going to make disciples. So I want to encourage you. Let's not be individuals and let's not be a church that drifts into protection mode and preserving mode at the expense of advancing the kingdom of God, of making disciples. Let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God because we're wrapped up in holding on to preserving and protecting. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus desperately loves all of us and desperately wants a relationship with every single one of us. And we want to point people to Jesus. And we want people to understand that they can be forgiven of their sins, that they can have life, eternal life, everlasting life. And that is found by us putting our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.